Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? We are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm your host tonight and Dean of Students for Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Uh, I also oversee our debate program, and I do just want to take a quick moment to do a shout out to my uh, two partners in this endeavor. Noah Berman is our sound editor, and he takes all of these episodes and makes them sound fantastic. And then, of course, my regular co-host Ethan Delves. Uh, it's a special day. I, I realized this morning as uh, I checked our Podbean statistics that one year ago today we launched our Podbean account and uploaded our first episode. So as of uh, February 3rd, 2020, our show is officially one year old. This is episode 101 that we've recorded, so it's kind of amazing that we've made it this long. Anyway, all of those little details aside, tonight uh, we are discussing the resolution for February's public forum debate, which reads, Resolved, the United States should replace means-tested welfare programs with a universal basic income. I'm joined on the show by a very, spe- very special guest, my friend, Elliot Geyser. Elliot, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be with you, Josh. It's been far too long, and great to talk to you on your podcast. I'm glad to hear that uh, this is the one-year anniversary of uh, a great program. Well, that's that's very kind. I, I know we we you're you're right. It has been far too long. I'm I'm trying to think. Have we crossed paths since Hillsdale? I mean, that's that's been eight years now, nine years almost. I feel like we may have run into each other on the debate judging circuit uh, at some point or another uh, since uh, we respectively left our undergraduate alma mater. But um, I could be just. Uh, uh, wistfully imagining uh, that that were the case. Uh, either a debate circuit or maybe a Hillsdale wedding. I mean, it seems like that's the place where I see people these days. That's right. Yep. Well, Both joyous occasions are the one more joyous than the other. So true. So true. Well, uh, Elliot, uh, g- give us uh, give us your story real quick. Uh, la- last we talked, you were. Uh, I, I distinctly remember you being a, a student at a very politically oriented college. With uh, but you had notable political aspirations then. If memory serves correctly, uh, I, I remember you running for student council or student federation or something, some position like that uh, in your freshman year. But but beyond college, catch us up on uh, where you are now and what you're doing these days. Well, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Uh, college was a lot of fun. There were a lot of opportunities extracurricularly, both in debate and then. Uh, forays into college, student government, et cetera. Uh, After college, I worked at a small management consulting firm and decided that that was ultimately not the path for me. Uh, So I applied to law school and took a fellowship with a think tank in Washington, D.C., the Heritage Foundation, focused on welfare policy. And I got to learn from the best and the brightest about that subject in the conservative world and attend a number of working groups from think tanks across the political spectrum on that subject. Uh, I I graduated from the University of Chicago Law School in 2016, uh, where I uh, was proud to have taken classes in antitrust law and admin law and 
questions about uh, constitutional law abound. Uh, I clerked for two federal courts of appeals for incredible judges uh, on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and then on the D.C. Circuit uh, and practiced at a very large law firm and now I'm at a boutique firm here in Washington, D.C., where I focus largely on administrative law questions uh, as well as energy and environmental law. Uh, and uh, questions of constitutional importance, First Amendment, separation of powers, things of that nature. That's a really broad pool of kind of law specialties you just listed. That that They, they must keep you busy. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I work a lot, uh, but it's great work, and it's all stuff that I would be thinking about probably anyway, but I'm fortunate that I get to, to make that my profession and vocation. Well, that, that's truly a wonderful thing to be able to say. I, I've met plenty of people who seem grumpy about their work. I'm always happy to hear someone who enjoys the work that he, he's been given to do. Well, Elliot, before we get into the, the topic tonight of, of welfare, uh, do tell us a bit about your debate experience. Uh, am I right in thinking you were a, an NCFCA debater, an occasional debater for Hillsdale, or am I misremembering those details? No, you are correct. I started debate when I was uh, 13 years old in NCFCA. Uh, I was affiliated with a club in Columbus, Ohio. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio originally, uh, but there wasn't room for me at the end in Cleveland at that point. And then something funny happened. Uh, the league that I was part of uh, engaged in uh, secessionism, and Ohio and Michigan and a number of other states eventually formed a parallel debate league called Christian Communicators of America, uh, where I competed the remainder of my time predominantly, but I also was in, I think, Region 7 for uh, NCFCA uh, occasional tournaments after the breakaway happened. Uh, I was the national champion in 2008 for CCA at the Cedarville Invitational Tournament, and then I went to Hillsdale um, and was a Hale Scholar on the debate team. I debated uh, seven out of the eight semesters uh, during the four years that I had there, uh, including winning a couple of, of tournaments, the Bowling Green uh, and the Butler Bulldog Classic, uh, and very narrowly missed qualifying uh, for uh, finals at the Lubbock uh, NPDA National Tournament my sophomore year, and, and was part of the, I think, you were part of the team as well for the, the Pi Kappa Delta uh, champion team that Hillsdale sent uh, back in 2009, yes. I want to say. Yes, I think that's right. I, I don't know if it was 2009 or not, but I, I, I remember it being a little later, but I, I could be wrong there. But yeah, that was, that was quite the, that was quite the tournament. I'd forgotten we overlapped on that one. That was, uh, I, I look back on that very, with very fond memories for sure. Yeah. And so I, I, I've done a variety of debate styles, uh, national parliamentary debate styles, uh, international public address debate, uh, the IPDA, as well as Lincoln-Douglas. And then in, college, in, in high school, it was predominantly team policy cross-examination style. Okay. Oh, that's so funny. I've done both speed and communication-oriented <laughs> debate styles. Oh, uh, that's we're uh, I've got a group of students. We're headed to the uh, the Harvard tournament in a couple weeks, and I have uh, one team of public forum debaters who are trying to currently get their speed up. They're currently just below three hundred words per minute, and they're they they want to be ready to if they hit a fast team, 
I, I've been trying to coach them to either be ready to call foul on spreading or you have to try and engage and match the spreading. And they're, they're trying to go with be ready for either of those. So let's uh, now, uh, Elliot, did you find that your time in debate prepared you well for your experience in the legal profession? Absolutely. I think there is basically no better extracurricular activity to prepare you for the practice of law, not in maybe the ways that some people might think. Uh, in the communication debate league, that's where you find the kind of soft skills that make you a successful interviewer and uh, attorney in a firm or an attorney in court. You're not going at speed, obviously, and so it's very important to be able to read your audience to be able to think on your feet and come up with a clear and simple way to describe often complex things to uh, an audience that either is very educated or needs to be educated by you. Oftentimes, when you're a junior associate, you go and you foray into the research project, and then you're trying to communicate to a partner, okay, here are the important things that you need to know, you know, because uh, this is just one of 70 cases that you're working on. Uh, On the speed side, I found that that was very useful in the law school exam context. Uh, So much of being a successful law student is doing well on your law school finals, and those finals are speed and spread. The more words you can get onto the page, the more aspects of analysis that you can get out, the better you will do as a general matter. And so being able to sit there and in three hours crank out 10,000 words of analysis uh, is imperative. And I actually think that being able to argue both sides of a resolution at a short drop of a hat is the best preparation for a law school final that you can have. Because all the points are not in getting the right conclusion. It's in being able to spell out everything from your standard violation impacts, all your links and link turns and the potential comebacks to every single one of those arguments in a way that is is clear and cogent and also being able to do that very quickly under pressure because your entire grade in most law school classes hinges on that single final at the end of the term and uh, the old joke goes, what do you call a doctor who's last in their class? A doctor. What do you call a lawyer who's last in their class? Unemployed. <laughs> so being excellent at the speed kind of debate was uh, a key, I think, to my success in law school final exams. Well, that is honestly the best articulation I've ever heard of a reasonable answer for where spreading does show up in post-competitive debate life. That's that 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 that's interesting. I've not thought about that before about how that skill could be really helpful in that particular context. That's hmm. yeah. There are, there aren't that many contexts in which they're very important, um, but the the advice I give, which was advice that was given to me by then law professor. Josh Hawley, now Senator Josh Hawley, when I was about to enter law school, is the book Getting to Maybe. It emphasizes that all the points in a law school final come from finding gray areas and writing about all the possible ways that you can resolve those gray areas. And the actual conclusion of how you resolve it is a very small fraction of your skill. Um, you, You actually want to just find the forks in the road and the forks in the law and then argue both sides of those propositions as fast as possible. 
That's fascinating, and I know. Well, maybe we should have a future episode on the uh, the, the the views of, uh, of of lawyers as sophists. I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear because I'm I'm I know you're no sophist, so I'm I'm sure you've had to wrestle with some of that with uh, some of the relativism that I, I would assume you've encountered in your in your legal studies and profession. Well, it's it's endemic to the legal academia, certainly uh, that legal positivism and the sort of legal process theorists dominate the academy. And that would say there's no answer, but what social construction tells you the answer is. And so uh, I think having a a firm foundation in uh, natural law reasoning was a good antidote to that. Hmm. Excellent. Well, let's get on to our resolution because, of course, we're recording this on February 3rd, as I already mentioned. The uh, uh, debaters have had access to the resolution for a solid month, and we just had the first Saturday across the nation where folks were actually debating this one instead of the previous uh, public forum resolution. Uh, so I was, I was really, I'm really excited, uh, that you reached out to me because I had no idea that you had policy experience or a policy fellowship studying welfare. So tell us a little about your role with the Heritage Foundation and what all you were working with, any kind of special projects that you may have had a hand in. What, 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 what should we know about that time? Well, so when I was in between my, my foray into management consulting and uh, attending law school, I wanted to find a useful way to spend my time where I could learn about something with the objective of developing some wonkery, the ability to dive deep into the details of a policy area. And many think tanks, the Heritage Foundation included, have fellowships that allow you to do that kind of research where you are uh, paid a modest sum to uh, have an office and work with the experts in that field, you know, people who have been working with this in uh, government or have a PhD in the subject um, and are willing to give you research projects that help you get your arms around some of the issues and help them with some of the legwork. And I was fortunate enough to get to to complete a, a graduate fellowship with Heritage um, in their uh, welfare and anti-poverty programs research area. And uh, my boss at that time, Robert Rector, uh, is an incredible human being. He has uh, a mind like few I have ever encountered. And so I got to learn a lot from him about how do you catalog the numerous federal and state welfare programs? How do you determine the intersection between them? How do you price them? How much do they cost? How do you evaluate their objectives and how well they fulfill those objectives or not? And so I, I got to spend a lot of time thinking about those questions and and wrote a couple of articles and did a little bit of research and, and behind the scenes work for some other publications that that the, the organization put out. But it gave me a great background, both in terms of how to think about policy in the real world and in terms of the philosophy and competing visions for this particular area of policy, uh, means tested welfare programs. Um, so that was sort of my background there. Um, And it was a really enjoyable experience for me. Um, Some of the current data now is probably replaced what I knew about the program then. But I I had a a decent handle on where to find data and statistics about it and then how to approach um, policymakers. And another thing that I got to do as uh, a graduate fellow is sort of be a fly on the wall when people from the Hill or people from other think tanks or from other foundations – policy makers 
they oftentimes will go to think tanks to try and get their perspective and become more educated about the subject. And so I got to watch the, the Heritage full-time employees, the varsity team, as it were, in action to do the kind of research and analysis and discussion and uh, how policymakers think about the academic think tank policy wonkery world. That's fascinating on so many levels. I am. Uh, there's a lot there. I'd love to ask follow up questions on. But I think I'll, I'll just I'll just stick with this one. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, competing philosophies. I'd, I'd love to tell us a bit more about that because I remember many a late night dorm discussion where, of course, as freshmen and sophomores, we were convinced that the best way to solve bloated government and uh, over overspending was to basically cut off the welfare state and get rid of it. And if we could just get rid of this whole thing, that would clearly solve a lot of problems. But obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of people in D.C. who have proposed that, but there's got to be good reasons to keep these welfare programs in play. Even if I don't necessarily agree with the reasoning, I'm sure I'd be impressed at the complexity of the ideas. So could you tell us a bit more about the competing philosophies that you encountered about why welfare is an important part of our existent state and existent body of policy? Yeah, thank you very much. I, I One thing to make clear, I'm not speaking for any group or institution or organization um, when I share this, and I'm not even necessarily going to be speaking for myself. Just descriptively, I see the lay of the land like this. The American experiment in government, which began in 1776 and then in the Constitution of 1787, uh, was really an overlay of a constitutional framework on tiny little societies that had already been functioning states sometimes for hundreds of years. The 13 colonies that became free and independent states in 1776, all of them had some measure of legal framework, often inherited from either the British common law or from uh, the Scottish Enlightenment ideals uh, about the law and Scottish law. Uh, And those states made provisions for people who were uh, unable to care for themselves, Uh, people who had, uh, through no fault of their own, reached the end of their rope, particularly widows, orphans, uh, the incapacitated, uh, army and military veterans. And there was this patchwork social safety net that existed before the U.S. Constitution was created, uh, vindicating the American founders by Thomas G. West, who's a Hillsdale professor, lays out some of the history of all this that I think is very fascinating. But Ben Franklin uh, wrote about this. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrote in some measure about this. It often existed as a social safety net, uh, what we would think of as a social safety net. They would have thought of as charity. But because we were dealing in small communities in which the church and civil society and the state were not clearly bordered in the way that we might think about it right now. So oftentimes, a local community would be headed by an alderman or a mayor who also happened to be an elder in the church, and there was sort of a free flow or public-private partnership model that defined how communities would take care of the people who couldn't take care of themselves. And this model emphasized one particular key distinction, the difference between the deserving poor 
and the indolent poor, people who were unable to care for themselves versus people who were unwilling to care for themselves or through some moral failing had landed themselves in a situation where they couldn't take care of their own. Hmm. So they would make a big distinction between the mother and her children of a family in which the husband was the town drunk. And that person would be cut off from the public fisc while they might support the essentially abandoned family um, through some combination of public taxation and church and charity support. And because these elements of the social fabric were close to the people that they were attempting to help, there was a certain personability to it. Uh, this wasn't an impersonal bureaucracy from some faraway place. It was usually somebody you knew. I, I think that the, maybe the way to describe it is at the end of It's a Wonderful Life when everyone in the small town comes to uh, Jimmy Stewart's house and they have all the money that he could need for his moment of need at that point, which was in response to the fact that his business had been run in sort of that biblical principle of not threshing to the edge of the field. Maybe mm. Bailey mm-hmm. Savings and Loan could have been better run um, from a business perspective, but it wouldn't have been as good for the community if they had been as cutthroat or uh, inflexible with the needs of the community because these were their friends. They knew one another. And so, you know, from a Hayekian perspective, Frederick Hayek, we talked a lot about information asymmetries. Information is best suited and most efficiently obtained at the local and the personal and individual sort of level. Hmm, okay. That's the, the, the overlay of the, the fabric, sort of the background history. Of course, the federal government took on a greater role in the lives of Americans, particularly with the Great Depression. That was maybe the biggest sea change. The federal government's involvement with care for people who um, – were poor or, or what would have been described as um, unable to take care of themselves was sort of sporadic throughout the 19th century, like a, a relief bill for veterans here, a relief for uh, victims of a flood or a fire or a war in this place or that place. And Grover Cleveland uh, famously vetoed what seemed to us to be small funds of relief that Congress would allocate uh, for you know, people who had been subject to natural disasters and were out of their homes and needed reconstruction. But the sea change with the, the creation of the New Deal architecture was twofold, I think. One was a shift from the concept of local control, trying to engage in some sort of moral virtue promoting enterprise between the deserving and the indolent with a much more morally neutral sort of sterile architecture of an impersonal federal government that would provide income or income supports to people who were materially destitute, where the question was much more material and much less moral. Uh, And so the, the shift from thinking about rights as negative rights towards negative as well as positive rights, um, was also a shift in, uh, sort of hollowing out the organic nature of the social safety net in the country. And so that was the sea change that really was consummated in the 1960s with the creation of the new, of the great society, Mm, which took what, 
the New Deal had started in terms of philosophy and exponentially increased it um, with both larger sums of money as well as a larger national project. LBJ launched the War on Poverty uh, and changed the, the nature of the, the project from the poor will always be with you and it's up to us to try and alleviate suffering with an eye towards human flourishing and ensuring people are um, making choices that benefit them to we're just going to eradicate this material condition that is also an impersonal force with the impersonal force of government. I think that's, it's obviously far too general, but that's sort of the narrative arc that I start with when I think about uh, welfare policy today. So when we look at something like means-tested welfare, is there any part of that old moral distinction between the deserving poor versus the indolent poor that survives in kind of a, a some standard of uh, some standard at all, really, in the fact that some people must meet these requirements to receive public aid, while other people who don't receive meet the requirements don't receive the aid? Does that is that some holdover from that older concept, you think, or are those unconnected? Well, I think that it's not all one thing. Um, and there are a couple of other uh, important nuances, I think, to put in here. Means-tested welfare is vast and scattered and not terribly well-coordinated. Uh, by the Heritage Foundation's count, there are 89 federal means-tested welfare programs. Um, the Congressional Research Service puts that at a different number. They say, I think it's 87, perhaps, across 14 different government departments and agencies. And the reforms that have created these have been a combination of both conservative and progressive visions. And progressive visions that were created and then reformed by conservative visions and conservative visions that were reformed by progressive visions. And so... There are certainly elements in which our current program attempts to facilitate human flourishing and attempts to move people from dependence to independence uh, and supports good behavioral choices. But there are also many elements in which that's really not the concern. And there are elements of the means-tested welfare state that seem, uh, to the reasonable observer, to be fairly arbitrary, uh, where as your income rises, you can be subject to a variety of cliffs. And if you fail to report income increases, uh, you could be subject to penalties and clawbacks that are, in some senses, very punitive. Uh, and so um, there have been studies that have shown that someone who moves from working 30 hours a week to 40 hours a week, if they are taking advantage of the full panoply of programs for which they're el eligible, will lose so much money as they rise that the effective tax rate of their increased work in clawback, clawed back benefits will subject them to a marginal tax rate approximating those faced by French billionaires. Right? So, you know, this is a very patchwork environment in which it's difficult to say, hmm, are we really focused on moral distinctions or are we just focused on material distinctions? Well, that makes sense. Um, help me with this. How do we not know exactly how many programs are considered means-tested welfare programs? You cited two different numbers from two different sources a moment ago. I'm having trouble understanding how do we not know exactly how many programs there are that fit in this category? 
Well, some of it is an information problem and some of it is a definition problem. Um, the Heritage Foundation, I think, if I, if I understand um, everything and recall, uses a focus on means testing. So does the project have an income or wealth requirement? And is it predominantly targeted to people who are low income? Uh, other programs like the Congressional Research Service has a broader definition. Does this provide a benefit just simply based on income, even if some of the benefits go to people that would be firmly regarded as in the middle of the income distribution? Uh, so the, the, that's part of it. The other part of it is the federal government is really big and the left hand often doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And many of these programs are small and target just a few people relative to some big programs like Medicaid, which is an enormous program and deals with many, many more people. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes we don't have a good handle on actually all the details and how much they spend. Um, and the other aspect of a lot of this is that it's a federal state cooperative federalism endeavor. Many of these programs are administered by states, but funded by the federal government. And that oh, means I did not know it's that. Difficult, it's difficult to be able to tell uh, sort of which dollar is coming from where and which programs all of them are flowing to. Um, so getting, getting your hand around what it is, Heritage comes down on the number $1.1 trillion a year between – what the federal government spends and what state governments spend on means-tested programs targeted to people at the bottom of the income distribution. Okay. Uh, $1.1 uh, trillion dollars a year. Yes, which is an enormous, really difficult to get your head around the size of that sum. The, the best way to understand it is that that is the number three ticket item in all government spending. Uh, after Social Security and Medicare, which are not means-tested programs, you have welfare. And then after that, down at number four, do you get federal dispense spending. Huh. Okay. That's – oh, my goodness. I, yeah, you're right. That is a massive number. I'm trying to – I'm just kind of staggered by that, that number. And even more flabbergasted about the difficulty of actually mapping that out. I, I can see why it would be worth spending a couple years just studying the subject to kind of get into the intricacies there. Um, Elliot, what what do you think the actual goal of means-tested welfare is? I mean, you, you mentioned President Johnson's phrase, the war on poverty. Is the goal of means-tested welfare to solve poverty, or does it have some other goal and uh, well, and, and depending on how you answer that one, would you say that it is working or not? Well, it's difficult to define a single goal. I think it would depend on your prior political philosophy, what the goal would be. If you are uh, a progressive-minded uh, person, you might think the goal here is not just to alleviate human suffering, laudable as that is. It would be to try and inculcate some form of equality to sort of correct for what are perceived market failures that lead to uh, income inequality where people at the top of the income distribution have significantly larger amounts of resources than people at the bottom of the income distribution to sort of make things more fair. Uh, I think there's 
also uh, a conservative vision that views this as alleviating suffering with a goal towards opportunity and moving people towards uh, something. Independence, the ability to work, the ability to enjoy the dignity and earn success that creates happiness and human flourishing through government partnership. Uh, I think there's also a, a strange school of libertarian leaning thought that says the goal here is to keep capitalism functioning in a political environment in which uh, people at the top of the income spectrum uh, are significantly fewer and therefore easily outvoted uh, to keep the, the, the revolution at bay, as it were. Uh, the idea that FDR's sort of socialism light in the New Deal forestalled the kind of revolutions that other countries in the Western world, like the Soviet Union and uh, the uh, Third Reich. And so, you know, the, I, that, that sort of idea that this kind of keeps, keeps people from being so... Uh, jealous of the prosperity that capitalism allows, that you can keep doing capitalism mostly the way it is, as long as you compensate people who are the, uh, the people who lose out in the competitive process. I, I would not subscribe to any of these goals myself personally, but I think that that's, that's sort of the, the three broad camps about what the goal of this federal program would be, if we're going to have such a federal program. And I think there are plenty of conservatives and, and liberals and libertarians who would say we should get rid of the entire system as it stands and move to something either more radical uh, in the direction of government spending or less government spending in a radical way. So if we're going to have the system, I think those are the three justifications for it, though. Uh, Fairness, uh, independence and opportunity, or uh, sort of compensating the losers of the competitive market. I've definitely heard the first two before. I have not run into that third camp. That uh, it reminds me of uh, some of what I mean. I'm pretty sure Karl Marx responded to that camp in 1848. I mean, the part of the Communist Manifesto is intended to articulate this idea that you almost have to make the working man's conditions worse so that he realizes that he doesn't have it as well as he should, so that he will rise up. So that sort of pacification of the potential revolutionary is, is what Marx was terrified by. So that that I find that fascinating. Uh, well, that yeah, you know, uh, your your suggestion there that maybe we need something new is also certainly part of this uh, uh, of this resolution because the uh, the con has to or the the pro side here is arguing for replacing means tested welfare programs with a universal basic income. Uh, the Probably the best argument I've heard on this so far uh, goes something like there are an unknown number of costly welfare programs that have overlapping expectations, amounts of money, and jurisdictions. The UBI will simplify all of this into one streamlined program that becomes more cost-effective since we're ceasing all other programs. Uh, but what do you make of that argument? Is it is it sound? Is it feasible? Is it plausible? So I think that that's probably the best argument for universal basic income is the administrability question. It sort of says, as a given, regardless of which of the goals of the welfare system you want to embrace, let's just make it the best possible welfare system we can. And so we want to lower the administrative costs and we want to reduce the potential arbitrary cutoffs 
that can create unfair situations. We want to get rid of the sort of moral paternalism that is inherent in at least some of the programs that attempt to try and inculcate some moral choices of some nature or another. And we want it to be really effective uh, to just do the best that a welfare system could do. And I think it was Milton Friedman who maybe popularized all of this. I think he called it the negative income tax. But the idea is everyone, regardless of their income, will get a certain payment from the government that operates as an insurance policy against bad times and operates as a safety net for people who can't support themselves in some respect, uh, whether they become temporarily or permanently incapacitated. And it facilitates the the goal of of fairness because uh, everyone gets the same thing no matter what. Uh, And there's no question of an administrative law judge changing someone's benefits uh, going forward. It's easy to plan your life and order your expectations around such a program. And the idea would be you could maybe make it so that it is less expensive than uh, the $1.1 trillion that we have now. And so it it advances goals of efficiency, fairness, and uh, doing whatever you want the welfare state to do better than it's doing it now. Hmm. I will confess, I don't know that I, I, I that you, you sound like you might be an advocate for the UBI. Or are you, do you think it's an actually a reasonable plan or are you playing devil's advocate here and staying away from your own point of view? Well, I'm trying to make the, what if I were an advocate for it, the, the best argument that I'd hear for it. Uh, the downside, um, again, not, not saying this is my view, but I think the, the downside argument is the political economy, public choice perspective which is, ah, yes, in a theoretical universe, if you're going to have a welfare state, having one that treats everyone equally and has very low administrative burdens and very few arbitrary decisions and is uh, agnostic as to what you do with your uh, freedom dividend, as uh, presidential candidate Andrew Yang describes his version of the universal basic income. Uh, The question is, how sustainable is this in a political universe? Uh, And there are several avenues that would be easy to imagine uh, detractors of such a program would come and attack it within five minutes of its adoption. First, there would be the people who take their guardrail-free universal basic income check and use it in a way that society regards as self-destructive or socially uh, destructive. So the people who say, I don't have to work, I can just sit in my basement playing video games and eating Fritos and smoking weed, and that's how I'm going to live my life. Uh, Or people who say, you know what, I am just going to take this money and I'm going to spend all of it all at once uh, and just go for it and live my bright burning life as a a young child without any regard to the consequences. Um, And people who would just potentially not be particularly financially literate, they get their welfare check their universal basic income check on the first of the month and it's spent by the fifth of the month and they don't have a job and they don't have any food and, or they spend it all at Walmart and they buy a whole bunch of kitsch and they don't have any leftover for their rent. And so now they're homeless. Um, People like that. So there's that argument that then immediately a bunch of social do-gooders would come and say, come on, we have to put some guardrails in here. We need to restore the caseworker model the adjudication model, 
We need to have some people checking up on everyone to make sure that they're doing responsible things and not going to starve. And there would also be the, the moral panic people that say, oh, my gosh, look at all of the moral hazard we've created. All these people who aren't working and are wasting their life uh, making bad choices with their life. So that's one easy avenue to see. The other avenue is the redistribution angle. I could easily imagine a large faction arising saying there is no universe in which someone who makes over $200,000 a year should get $1,000 a month in government money. And that people who make under $200,000 a month or a year should be getting, you know, only a thousand. So double it for the bottom income distribution and take it away for the upper income distribution. Um, and where you draw the cutoff line would probably be subject to debate, but you could imagine a, a large uh, democratically powerful faction coming to, coming to bear with saying, double it for the people on the bottom, take it away from the people on the top. Um, you know, similar arguments against the flat tax that uh, someone who makes a large amount of money, this is just a drop in the bucket for them. They don't need it at all. And they, they should be made to give it away. And people at the bottom of the income spectrum, every marginal dollar they have is actually a, a larger effective dollar for them. Uh, I could also see uh, a universe in which uh, people try to add on to it. So, okay, let's keep the universal basic income, but we really need education and workforce education for people who are uh, low-skilled workers uh, or maybe displaced by a trade deal in the future or by automation. It's not enough to provide them with money. We need to spend money on something that constructs an educational model for them because a large number of the 89 federal welfare programs are workforce training programs or have a workforce training component inherent in them mm. that the UBI would have ostensibly replaced. And so it would be very easy to find ways to develop chinks in the armor of the universal basic income. And then I guess the final critique of the, the universal basic income model, besides the fact that it might deteriorate because of, of politics, is that it would be enormously expensive um, and not necessarily as easy to administer as people think. Uh, for example, what do you do with people who are not functionally part of the electronic banking system uh, and people who are not particularly on the grid? 500,000 people who are homeless, according to certain estimates that Bernie Sanders likes to cite all the time. Or, for example, uh, what do you do with the fact that immediately financial instruments would be developed to try and promise your future universal basic income away for more income now. How would you prevent a black market from arising in which people sell their future rights to universal basic income to a loan shark so that you could get 10 grand today uh, and then you know the next 10 months of your universal basic income plus a little interest will go to you know, the loan shark person. Uh, how would you prevent people from trying to put down their universal basic income as part of the, the calculation on buying something legitimate, like a house through a mortgage? Um, and what do you do about inflation? The fact that, oh, this is now the threshold floor. Everyone gets this amount of money every single year. So now prices are going to have to rise in order to induce people into the labor market. Wages will have to rise which will create a cycle where 
the basic goods in order to live your life, housing, food, clothing, transportation, all correspondingly experience a form of inflation or inflationary pressure because of the universal basic income. Establishing a new floor, uh, a baseline of zero is now $12,000 a year. I could start to see how you racked up those championship titles you, you cited at the beginning of, of this episode because I, I thought of a couple of those when we were doing initial case prep. I had the inflation argument pretty quick, but man, that loan shark idea is genius. I have got to get my guys prepped out on that loan shark angle. We got to run that and see how it does. <laughs> that was great. Well, I mean, many of these proposals suggest that there's going to be some agreement that says, you know, you're not allowed to to accept this as a form of uh, collateral for a purchase. You know, you can't buy a new car based on your universal basic income. But that all actually is fairly complex to administer, and there are sophisticated people, legal and illegal, who will have a strong incentive to try and get around it. Oh, man. I think, now that you say that, I'm thinking, okay, so if I literally get $1,000 a month, whether that's in a in ethnic, or it's cash or shows up in my bank account, if I'm on the grid, uh, once I have it, I can use it, right? Like, it's going to be really hard for the government to track how exactly I use that. Right. Well, and huh. ostensibly, one of the benefits is now that you just have this universal basic income, we don't need to have all of the sort of invasive government paternalism tracking you. Um, and so, you know, if you really did it just very laissez-faire, now everybody gets their negative income tax, um, whether they get it or not, you would have to expect the polity of the United States or any country to have a lot of uh, guttural fortitude to sit on and watch as many people take the the, the gift of the universal basic income and use it to self-destruct. Man, well, that, that, that is a fascinating, fascinating argument. Um, well, Elliot, let me ask you uh, uh, probably just a couple more questions. We're coming in on time here. Um, yeah. Now, on a, on a very broad level, I think you, you've spoken to some of this along the course of this episode, but on a very broad level, who, does, who would you say means-tested welfare does help? And is there a corresponding group who is obviously objectively harmed by means-tested welfare? Well, it's difficult to say. Uh, on, on a certain level, I, I think at the height of uh, the, the food stamp program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is one of the larger uh, means-tested programs, about 47 million Americans, one in seven Americans at that time, I think this was in 2013, uh, we're participating in that program. And so who does it help? Well, one out of seven Americans had some support for the purchases of food um, through their the SNAP program. Um, and there are arguments to be made for the multiplier effect of that. People on a, a more Keynesian economic modeling perspective say that for every dollar spent in SNAP, there's a 1.5 multiplier, which supports a variety of other jobs. Uh, particularly in the agriculture industry. It's interesting that the, the food stamp program and the farm bill have almost always been log-rolled as a single item, and there's a logic to that. But again, the question is, who does it hurt? Well, there are the taxpayers. Uh, this is a large and expensive set of programs. $1.1 trillion is the number that, that Heritage put on it. 
uh, and uh, our future children are going to have to, at some point, confront the fact that we have a large debt and a large deficit, and taxation on any income bracket is going to have distributive effects and effects on growth and efficiency in the economy. And those are also rancorous debates that are waiting to happen. Um, and in a certain sense, people who are part of these programs, uh, in some sense, there have been those who have argued, uh, Franklin Roosevelt famously once said that uh, dependence is a subtle destroyer of the human spirit. And I would not say that everyone who, who uh, is a participant in a means-tested program is uh, succumbing to dependence or in some way lacks moral character. But there are studies that intergenerational uh, poverty has a similar effect to intergenerational dependence. People who are uh, using means-tested welfare services, there's a high likelihood that their children will use means-tested welfare services. There's also an element to which immigration becomes an explosive issue because of means-tested welfare state. Uh, lots of people who support the means-tested welfare state are in favor of tight restrictions on the border because of fear that people will come to the United States and participate in these programs and be eligible for these programs um, and sort of take what is the entitlement or the right of the native-born population. And uh, there's also a certain sense, and some have made this argument, I don't know if it is true, I haven't verified it empirically, that uh, the children of immigrants uh, oftentimes are um, susceptible to labor market competition with the next wave of immigrants. So the first group, Generation One, comes, they end up working really hard and having great jobs, and then their children have many of their similar characteristics uh, demographically uh, or, or higher education, et cetera. But then another wave of immigrants comes, and Generation 2 now faces stark wage pressure, which can drive them towards the means-tested welfare state. Um, so there are complicated ripple effects through the rancor of our politics, and questions like immigration and immigration levels and the labor market uh, that are deeply affected by having a large welfare state. There's so much there. That's that is amazing. I I had not thought about the way those the different generations of immigrants would uh, would really be affected by that. Uh, I did recently judge at a tournament that brought in some of those immigration concerns. I was uh, judging congressional debate, and one of the bills that the 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 uh, the, the chamber was considering was on a a plan to, they called it a bill to protect taxpayers. It was illegal immigrants who had been, who could show five years of tax returns and did not have a felony conviction that they would then be not, they would be immune from deportation. And a lot of the argumentation there centered around the fact that since they had been paying into the system, they should be permitted to benefit from the system they were paying into. Uh, that, that's, that is a fascinating, uh, fascinating set of ideas. Um, yeah, well, and, and you know, the other the other point on this is Milton Freeman, the progenitor of the negative income tax or universal basic income, um, also famously said you cannot have open borders and a welfare state. Huh. Uh, that that those two policy choices are incompatible for a society, and it seems like the United States has chosen to have a means tested welfare state, and that uh, we've also chosen that. 
we can't really have open borders and free flow of labor across uh, national boundaries. Uh, Elliot, that is some fa- those are some fascinating observations. Um, I'd love, as we wrap up the episode tonight, um, could you give us any advice you might want to pass on to listening students? Our audience is most likely middle school and high school students who are thinking about, uh, who are involved in debate in one way or another. And at least several of my students I know are interested in being lawyers someday. We have several students who their parents are lawyers. They see themselves going down a legal path. Uh, would you offer any advice to them as they're looking at college and thinking about pre-law or already kind of thinking, what do I want to be, what kind of law do they want to study? What, what advice would you offer them? I would say the best lawyers are generalists. And so the, hey, the thing I would steer students away from is uh, too much attempt at over-specialization and, and thinking that if they do uh, a hyper-focus on mock trial and moot court and pre-law, that that will give them some leg up or competitive advantage. I think that it would be much more prudent to explore a variety of interests. I think policy debate is a great way to do that. Uh, and learn uh, what it means to be a good human being. And if you happen to be a good human being who is a lawyer, that's far better than just being a lawyer uh, on its own. Uh, That's my general advice. In specific, I think getting good grades is imperative. You definitely don't want to find yourself in a scenario where you think you're going to law school because you will uh, become wealthy or financially stable and then your grades come in at a B or a C average at a second-tier law school, and then you, you find that you can't find employment that is commiserate with the amount of uh, financial debt you've had to take on. So uh, having a, a strong collegiate GPA, uh, limiting the amount of debt you take on as an undergraduate, uh, working hard to get uh, a good LSAT score, and I would advise people to take prep courses for that because – Like many things, there are games, logic games involved. Uh, I wish I had done that. I didn't. It turned out fine for me, but I think I would have probably uh, been more successful if I had actually taken the prep course. And then go to either the best law school that you get into, especially if it's a top-tier law school, or go to the best school in the jurisdiction where you think you are likely to practice. Hmm. So if you want to practice in... Uh, Ohio, go to the Ohio State University. If you want to practice in California, go to Stanford. And if you want to practice in Montana, it's not a bad idea to go to the University of Montana. Uh, And so there are some rubs and nuances to that. I I think if you want to practice in Washington, D.C., going to a D.C.-based school isn't always the smartest choice because you are now in a lane with everyone at Georgetown who also wants to be a D.C. lawyer. It might be better to what I the strategy that I employed, which was to go to the University of Chicago, uh, because, you know, 200 people in my class in Chicago, well, a large chunk of them wanted to stay in Chicago and a relatively smaller number wanted to go to the Washington practice. And so law firms, when they go to hire, they usually want to get uh, a diversity of schools, a diversity of regions and uh, in their incoming lawyer classes. And so. You know, I, I mitigated the amount of competition that I would have to face if I were to have said gone to George Washington or Georgetown by going to uh, a top school in Chicago, but targeting the D.C. market. Fantastic. So th- that's a fire hose amount of advice. Uh, but <laughs> I think that if you are being a generalist, if you are seeing uh, the world 
in all of its color and grandeur and glory as the Lord has made it, uh, you can't go wrong. That's a that's a great word of advice. Elliot, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. This has been some great, great uh, conversation. I really appreciate what you brought to this resolution and the thoughts that you've shared. Thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk and best of success to your students. Oh, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening tonight to this episode of What's the Res? I'm grateful to have Elliot Geyser on the show. Uh, We hope that you've enjoyed and that this episode is a benefit to you. If you want to get in touch with us to let us know uh, what you thought of this advice or share with us the arguments that you've run on this, you can email us at whatstherez at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Instagram and Reddit with the hashtag at what's the res underscore. We're also on Facebook at what's the res or facebook.com slash what's the res. You can also find us on YouTube by searching for what's the res underscore. And of course, if you can't get enough debate in your life, you can also subscribe to our premium debates. We do one new debate episode each month. Those are real debates by real people where we debate the pressing issues of the day. Our, uh, we have an episode from a couple months ago that's actually on the universal basic income. And uh, we, we have a variety of other episodes as well. So you can find those by going to our website at www.what's the res.com. Click the banner and it'll take you right to that page. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We appreciate your support. And until next time, speak well, work hard, and seek the truth. Uh-huh.